0: Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by one of the warriors in the fight against COVID misinformation uh, and really uh, a great sacrifice to himself personally, as we'll discuss in a moment. But this is uh, Dr. Pierre Corey, who uh, has a new book coming out on ivermectin. Which uh, really details many of the inside story of what happened with ivermectin, and you know why it's uh, essentially pharma was able to suppress it successfully. So, welcome and thank you for joining us today.
1: Oh, thanks, Dr. McCall. It really my pleasure to be here.
0: Good now, really, you. but before we go into the details, I'd like to talk a bit about your personal story and background. Sure. Um, sure. Maybe just the the most curious one, I think most people are interested in, and certainly me, would be an update on what has happened to the campaign against you. Not only you, but your associate, Dr. Paul Merrick and uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, who are all internists. Uh, you and, and, Paul are critical care internists and, and, uh, Peter is a cardiologist, but nevertheless still certified, by the same board, which is the American board of internal medicine. And I didn't realize until I had my interview with Peter that, I, that their attempt to essentially remove your credentials from that board really limits your ability to practice medicine. Um, you know, as a family physician. In private practice, it wouldn't. I mean, I'm not an internist and I'm boarded by the family practice boards, but if they removed my board, it wouldn't have anything to do with me practicing in, in if I what I was still patients. But apparently that's not the case for you. So I'm wondering if you yeah. can update us with the latest on their efforts to take away your certification.
1: Yeah, so so your point is actually important, right? So, you know, when I first got sort of the letter and I could see they were coming after my board certification. I mean. Board certifications historically were just a a badge of distinction, right? It showed that you passed a higher level test and you had some sort of, you know, higher level of knowledge. But, you know, the way the system works now, uh, if you're not board certified, there's numerous academic medical centers that you cannot join their staff, Uh, insurance companies will not put you on their panel. Um, So for me, if I ever wanted to go back to critical care, it would be tough. Um, I I do think there would be an avenue because I think there are hospitals in underserved areas which don't have those criteria. And I'm sure they'd be happy to have me. Um, But let's be honest, Joe, uh, I'm not going back. I mean, I'm done. I, I, I cannot. There's no way I could walk into a hospital There's no way I could have discussions or lecture honestly about, I've just learned too much. I've learned too much about pharmaceutical control of almost all of the medical evidence. I mean, you start with, you know, statins, SSRIs, you know, we lived through a drug called Zygris, which is a massive corruption in critical care for years. Um, And then the corruptions around, you know, Paxlovid and Ivermectin, I mean, there's no way I can fit. I'm like, now I'm a, a square peg in, in a round hole. So so to be honest, I don't think it would have impact because I am also now in private practice as well. You know, I have a, a, a kind of a bustling telehealth practice. And so, and I'm very happy. I'm outside the system. I can do and say and care for the patients in a manner that I best see fit. And so um, I, I, you know, I think for Peter, maybe um, he may go into private practice as well outside of a system. So anyway, uh, but yeah, so what happened with that, and this is kind of interesting, is the way which we replied was different than Peter. So Peter um, Peter replied in the way that I thought I was going to, which was he, he basically just presented all the evidence to support all the statements that they accused him of, of as being misinformation, um, very data-driven, evidence-based. What we did is our lawyer looked at their policy on misinformation and the process of let's, let's call it convicting someone as a misinformationist <laughs> required that they provide us the evidence showing that we are wrong and misinformed. But the letter to us was bizarre. It was this hodgepodge of statements that I'd made or written on my Substack. um, And it was just implied that that's a misinformation. And at the end, they just said, we expect a response letter in 45 days. A committee will meet and review and a decision on um, disciplinary action will be made. And so we just wrote back very simply. We said, uh, excuse us, but your letter does not follow your own misinformation policy. We ask that you kindly reissue the letter with the evidence showing that we're wrong. And we've gotten radio silence
0: ever <laughs> since. So. Turned around on him. Wow! That's great. Really? So that, smart lawyer. Yeah. Smart lawyer. Say that again. Smart lawyer. Yeah. Oh,
1: yeah. He's great. He's great. He, he's a lawyer that's been. Um, his specialty is actually uh, defending and supporting like naturopath, alternative medicine doctors. You know, because I mean, the boards and and the the system has been after those docs for a long mm-hmm. time. So sure. he, he is, you know, chronic Lyme specialists, things like that, and so. Uh, he, he knows what he's
0: doing. Terrific! So they haven't gotten back to you. And it looks like that might be a successful strategy for you.
1: Well, yeah. I, I wonder if they're going to sign someone to issue that letter or they're just, or, you know, probably Joe, what they're going to do is they're probably still going to have their meeting. They're going to look at our response <laughs> and they're going to say, you're done. I, I don't know. You know, yeah. and and then the other saddest thing, uh, Joe, is that this will not impact Paul at all because his career is over. He, he does. not ah, He's in the
0: retirement phase he he doesn't
1: practice clinical medicine anymore. I mean, he was an intensivist, a pure intensivist. That's all he did. Um, and he he would never go back into an ICU now. And and he's one of the greatest critical care, care doctors in history, if not the greatest.
0: Yeah, well, it's I'm sad to see that, but uh, in, in a sad way to end his career. But for your, in your case, it's really interesting because what what you were doing in critical care medicine is sort of the epitome of um, intense intensive care. There's no question, and and you set, you took a, a pretty significant, almost 180 degree turn to go to almost primary care medicine. Yep. And keep people out of that scenario, which is what I concluded when I had the choices we all do was we're finishing our medical studies as to what specialty we're going to go in. And, I, and, you know, I was torn at the time between internal medicine and family medicine. And I realized I do not want to spend time in the hospital. My purpose is to keep people out of the hospital. So, I mean, obviously, Joe, not everyone.
1: Joe, can, I, can I comment on that? Because what you just said is is really important to me yeah. because you know, I went into critical care because it, it was really like high level adrenaline. I found the physiology and the, the the organ failures and trying to maintain and juggle multiple organ failures at one time to be highly intellectually stimulating and, and intellectually sta- satisfying when you save someone. But you're absolutely right. You know, all of those years that I spent teaching, I mean, I'm directing my care at really, you know, those final... Chapters in someone's life. And even I will tell you, there's I've had amazing successes where I was able to return someone who was deathly ill to full functional status, but that was not the norm. Most people were elderly, frail, multiple comorbidities. And even when they survived the ICU, they basically progressed into months of, you know, either rehab or what would I call chronic critical care, which is repeated episodes of sepsis. And, and so that part wasn't very satisfying. And now you're absolutely right. Now I treat complex chronic illnesses. My specialty now that I'm really interested in is figuring out this long haul and, and post-vaccine injury syndromes Um, now, there, we collaborate with doctors who've been doing that for decades, you know, with, with chronic Lyme and fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome, which were, which are were wickedly difficult to treat and understand. And so, like, I kind of have a new, not only... Career and practice, but a new intellectual focus and and you're absolutely right it's much more satisfying i mean i'm I'm literally returning people to levels of function that they they weren't at before i mean I mean patients come to me uh, I use you know random percentages, but at like twenty percent of their former function you know they, these were oftentimes healthy, full careers, uh, children exercised, ate right. And now they're fully disabled with with numerous organ system complaints. And and I'll tell you, getting them from 20 to 40 is a big deal. You know, mm-hmm. like with, when they can actually do like just a little bit more than they were doing before. And, you know, and when you get them to 80, it's transformative. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I yeah, I absolutely I totally agree with you. I, like, I, I, I don't regret my career. I think I taught, you know, because I will tell you, ICU is really a... Um, it's almost like a classroom. Everybody who comes through there, we teach a lot of physiology. Like I taught, you know, a couple, you know, a generation of physicians who went into other specialties. And I think that what they learned about the physiology, the, pro- the approach, the, the thought processes that we had to use and the judgment we had to use. I, I think that part I'm proud of. I, I think I was uh, in, in, integral in, in training uh, doctors, but you're right, the, the impacts on patients, are, are nothing like it is, and keeping them out of the hospital, right?
0: And it's a, it's a, just shifting of your skill set to a different sh- intellectual challenge. That, that in my view. Is it potentially even more challenging? I of I totally the complexities <laughs> that are there. I mean, at end stage. I mean, there's there's a lot of commonalities that make it pretty cut and dried. But when you have at the level you're at t- t- at tackling now there's so many variables that contribute to it it's it's a real real detective challenge for sure it, it's
1: it, and and the thing is is you're absolutely right it's way more challenging i'm so humbled and i tell my patients you know i, I say listen i have to be humble here i um I'm trying to figure this out, I'm collaborating, I'm reading, I'm learning from you, I'm learning from each patient, you know, because we're doing a lot of empiric therapies, right, we're, we're trying things, and so I learn, you know, each patient serves as their own control, and, and I'm finding different things work in different patients, but the, the real challenge that I'm finding, Joe, is that I don't have any biomarkers or tests, which I find mm-hmm. helpful to direct therapies, it, you know, a lot of the tests are normal you know, even inflammatory markers, clotting markers are normal. And, and yet I know that they have inflammatory processes and they're, you know, thrombogenic. And and so it's, you know, I wish there was more research and guidance in, in these diseases.
0: I agree. Well, I want to dive into that in a little bit, then we can go into your book. But before I do that, I wanted to share an interesting memory I had. And, uh, you know, in light of the fact that they're coming after the three of you, uh, you know, I was wondering, why didn't it, the Illinois Medical Board come after me for my license for misinformation? Well, they, they in, in some ways they did. They had a, they called me up and asked me a bunch of questions. I don't know when, and last, at least a year ago, maybe longer. And then I remember that, that that's the same medical board that took, that sought to take my license away about 10 or 15 years ago, when I published a review and wrote an article about how useless mammography was. And in fact, it was worse than this. Wow. So it probably contributed to increasing cancers. Now they had some people write in complaints. No one suffered or died. It was resu- a result of the article I wrote, but they right. were, they, they wanted to take me out. So they were going to discipline my license and potentially even take it away. And uh, I said, no, you're not. So I wound up, I wound up suing them in the state Supreme court and we yeah. won based on First Amendment principles. So they they may have mem- remembered that, that they it wasn't going to go down easy. And we, Joe, it
1: goes without saying to... that your article was absolutely evidence-based with a lot of data to form that yeah. conclusion and that recommendation. And it was science. Yeah. But it's inconvenient science because there's a whole system of mammography that's embedded into our, our health system, right? And so I get it.
0: Yeah, so anyway, that brought back some good memories. But I wanted to dive into your treatment protocols and uh, suggest that the reason that most of the, it seems like the primary complaint, most of the people that are presenting you with long-haul COVID would be fatigue, you're tired, yes. not enough energy. So you have to go back and to physiology and remember, well, what generates 90% of the energy of your body? It's your mitochondria. So most likely this lack of fatigue and energy is a result of inefficient energy production, impaired energy production in the mitochondria or, or more simply mitochondrial dysfunction. 100%. So, yeah, so the, the challenge is how to recover it. I'm going to suggest a few things. In fact, maybe we can even discuss after we finish this, you know, some potential collaboration, because I think I've got some ideas that might radically improve your results. And, and if you're getting the results, you have the platform and the clinical uh, credibility to, to spread this even more widely, because I've not... I don't have a, uh, an opportunity to treat patients directly, so I, I, I would I would love to have the opportunity to treat them indirectly.
1: Well, here's the thing, Joe we we have a group that we collaborate with, um, huh. like on our protocols. We had you know several meetings. We got input from a lot of folks, like you know like Merrill Nass and yeah, yeah. You know, JP Salibi. No one invited me. And that's the thing. I want to invite you to our next meeting. I'd love to hear yeah. your, because I will tell you that protocol. It's really not a protocol because it's not really structured as one, but it's really a list of things that we have found effective and how you deploy and apply them and in what sequence. It's really up to the practitioner. I mean, we don't have a rigid approach, <laughs> and, and it's meant to be an evolution. We're constantly adding, tweaking, you know, putting things to consider. And but yeah, the mitochondrial recovery—that's a topic and uh, a target that I, I'm I'm listening, I'm learning. You know, yeah,
0: I'm I'm actually in the process of writing my next book on that, so and it oh, should wow. be out. Well, I should finish it this year, but I'm about halfway through it. And uh, so it's really hot in my mind right now. But anyway, one of the, I would be really intrigued. I don't know if anyone's brought this to your attention before, but there's this this is the oldest drug in the world. This is the only drug I embrace. Do you know what the oldest drug in the world is? At least the modern world. It's, it was a textile dye invented in Germany in 1876. Methylene blue. Methylene blue.
1: That's yeah, right. I, I mean,
0: I, I am. Um... So we, uh... <laughs>
1: My really sick patients were using methylene blue because, you know, some of the really sick ones that aren't responding to medicine, we do send them from my you know, we do, I send them to a clinic where they do, you know, apheresis, ozone, methylene blue, infrared. Oh,
0: nice. Not, and, that's really good.
1: One of them actually was discharged on oral methylene blue. And so my interest is really, I want to figure out how to implement oral methylene blue. In, in
0: yeah, you, I don't recommend it IV. The, the only... Uh, application or indication rather for IV and meth is if the person's dying, it's like of cyanide overdose where you've yeah, got to yeah. get in there quickly, but no, I mean, oral has more than sufficient absorption. There's, there's yeah. really no difference except for the rapidity at which it gets in. So typically 30, 40, 50 milligrams of the powder, you know, taken once or twice in divided doses should be pretty dramatic. And the beautiful thing about this is that the energy recovery is typically within hours. Yeah. hours yeah so it, it's it, it and it it because it increases the ability of the uh mitochondria to produce uh atp about 30 percent in electron yep. transport chain so well well Joe and you got it's not a, it's not that treating the foundational foundational clause, but if you give them more energy, they're they're able to be more compliant with the other and, and see
1: and see that's the importance that like I think of mitochondria recovery it's it's really one component because there are other processes that are actually impacting the mitochondria. And so interrupting those processes, whether it be Uh, you know, hypoperfusion from microclotting or, you know, these unrelenting inflammatory, the monocytes and macrophages are activated. Because I will tell you, when I treat those processes, I see tremendous recoveries Mm -hmm. in some patients, in some. And, And that's the other thing that's so humbling is like, I'll have two patients, let's say in vaccine injury, who present with very similar clinical presentations. Drug A and B work like gangbusters in patient A and do very little in patient B. And, and and you know, when we talk about the protocol, like we've kind of like this uh, elaborated so far on about six or seven different pathophysiologic mechanisms. And one of them is mitochondrial dysfunction. But I don't know which is the predominant one in each oh. patient.
0: Yeah, yeah. I,
1: I have no way of figuring that out. And the only way I figured out is by responses to therapy. Like, for instance, I had young one young woman recently, she was... I think she was a long hauler. I mean, there's a lot of overlap to the two syndromes. But I tried a number of trials of therapy, and you know what resurrected? Or finally, when I started to treat mast cell activation, you know, mm. I put her on antihistamine, famotidine, you know, ketotifen, and boom. How about how about quercetin? Uh, I, quercetin is tricky for me, and maybe you can mm. educate me, like. The problem with quercetin is it's so poorly bioavailable and, mm-hmm. and really the one, the, the trials that seem to work, it's a specific formulation, you know, mm-hmm. like it's either phytosomal or liposomal and I, I, you know, and so many patients come to me already on course. I, I think they're just not on the right dose and not the right yeah. formulation, but but it can be a, a good, it is purportedly a good mast cell stabilizer. I just clinically get better responses with other drugs, but again, okay.
0: maybe well, know. it's not a drug. not a drug.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, there you go. Okay. Uh, with other uh therapies, let's say that yeah, yeah, uh, yeah.
0: yeah. yeah, but so, one of the things you can do is simple. It's uh I don't think they make it, but it's easy to make yourself as to you do a quercetin's suppository because then you're going from uh oral to transmucosal, which has a much higher absorption and yeah. less less met um metab- metabolic byproducts that shifted to it so it doesn't get methylated or detoxified as easily. Um But uh, one of the things I don't know if you've done is the ability to do it is going to be progressively decreasing in the the coming months. But it it doesn't cost anything. uh, And it's totally natural is to get your patients into the sun for an hour a day, preferably around solar noon. And the reason that's so effective, obviously for vitamin D, but perhaps even more so in the case of the mitochondria, is that the, the near infrared, the near infrared. Yeah. Specifically, it was about 40% of the sunlight and it increases the melatonin. The melatonin increases right in the mitochondria. So you radically reduce reactive oxygen species and increase secondarily increase the efficiency of ATP. I I will
1: tell you, I just, uh, so we have been recommending that. Um, Yes. Yes. And I will tell you, I had just like 10 days ago, I had my first kind of really robust clinical response from someone who actually employed that without me telling them. But mm-hmm. my patient who was still struggling, she said, you know, a few weeks ago, I go out, you know, around sunrise and I, I'm i out there in the sun. I relax for an hour a day. She found it to be extremely helpful at mitigating her symptoms. And so, um, no, you're you're spot on. I,
0: again, well, sl- sunrise is a different time of day. You're not going to get that near infrared intensity to, to cause that mitochondrial And and you've got to have minimal clothing on, it too. It's not going to work if you go out with long sleeve, uh, shirtly pants. Just not. So you need the radiation on your skin, uh, so and it's it's free. I mean, you, you and you don't have to do. I mean, you don't have to just sit there and do nothing. You could read. You could. And you package
1: that in a pill, uh, Joe, and tra- no. charge a lot of money. Then what worth? What, what use is it? Yeah, it, it's pretty. <laughs> Sorry it's for, pretty for my cynicism. cynicism.
0: <laughs> oh no, I know. In a commercial sense, that's correct. But you know, once you. I've been enormously impressed with my clinical career to just providing people with solid, basic lifestyle changes. And once they integrate them, it makes all your other recommendations so much easier because you're coming on a higher level of health and that's going to, that you change the physiology to a a condition where they're more, much more likely to respond.
1: There's no question. And your work and your experience in doing that has never been more important than now, because that's one of the things that I, I, when I talk now in interviews, you know, I, When we talk about our work in the FLCCC, we're trying to give patients agency, more agency over their health because, you know, going to the system and following system recommendations, again, it's so corrupted by pharma and they're not, those treatments are not really interested in getting you better. You're not a good customer if you're healthy, right? And so, you know, and and I don't know that I believe that as much as I do now. Um, I mean, I always had my suspicions that all was not you know, centered <laughs> in my career, but now I, I see very little that's patient centered, to be honest. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, you're, you're... Right. Giving patients, you know, agency and approaches in order to preserve and, and improve their health is, is immensely satisfying.
0: Well, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the Flexner Report, which was catalyzed by Rockefeller and Carnegie in 1910 yeah. and funded by it. Uh, but it was really the, the foundation that led to the removal of all this type of information from the medical school curriculum. It 100%. was essentially ousted 110 years ago; gone, you know, never I, be put back I in. Didn't
1: understand that history until recently, and 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 when you read about, it, I mean, they literally natural remedies were you know quacks, and you know they went after osteopaths and chiropractors and everything, and they they just wanted. Petroleum-based
0: pharmaceuticals
1: where the, you know, rule the land, and it's stunning. It's stunning.
0: Um, and but many it, people today don't know that Rockefeller yeah. owns fifty percent of the drug companies. Yeah. Least, you know, per percent, not directly hundred percent, but the percentages that they're owned is about half. Half so it was a pretty clever and actually brilliant business strategy
1: it it, it, it's, it it was formidable what he achieved i mean you know i just i just came ac- across this um little data point the other day that in in marsha um i think her la- i think you pronounce her last name angel or angle and you know, the yeah. former yeah. editor of New
0: England journal right
1: yeah and and you know and she left she left as editor because she progressively got disgusted with the corruption and influence. She
0: wrote a book, too.
1: Yeah, she wrote a book. And in that book, Joe, she writes that in 2001, among the Fortune 500 companies, the top 10 pharmaceutical companies had more profits than the rest of the Fortune 500 combined. Yeah.
0: And you know what else is really impressive about that? Many people who aren't in the medical field like we are would, would not appreciate this necessarily is that the New England Journal of Medicine is the highest impact journal in the entire world. It's number one and she was the editor for a, a, almost a decade, maybe longer. I don't know. can't yep. recall. But, but having her say that, the, the most the editor of the most prestigious medical journal journal of all in the world to say that is extraordinary.
1: And, and, and absolutely and like that's the other transformation, Joe, that Paul and I have undergone. I think me more so than Paul. Is that we really looked to those journals thinking that they were, you know, the most sophisticated and that was the top levels of science and seeing what was published in those journals throughout COVID has uncovered just absolute control by the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, what appears in those journals is what they allow to appear in those journals, period. I know of many positive studies of repurposed drugs rejected and even worse We've seen them pull the following, like JAMA and New England Journal, both. Instead of rejecting, they hold on to it as if they're considering it, sometimes for months, and then the rejection comes months later. Never heard of that in my career. I mean, usually when I've tried to submit manuscripts... They either say, this is interesting, we're sending it out for peer review, or they say, this is not of sufficient interest to our readership at this time. And they literally were rejecting positive trials of ivermectin. Um, and, and, and And then probably the greatest and most saddening corruption that they pulled is that they published the TOGETHER trial on ivermectin, the one down in Brazil which is so brazenly fraudulent and corrupt. And there's so much documented actions that those investigators took in order to ensure that they did not have a statistically significant benefit for ivermectin. And yet the New England Journal of Medicine published it. And when you look at the design and the conduct of the trial, it should never be published. It was so brazenly corrupt. And the investigators were all working for either their own companies or other companies whose sole job was to do research contracts for pharmaceutical companies. I mean, what would happen in their careers, Joe, had they published a positive trial on Ivermectin?
0: That's it. it.
1: Bye. No more contracts.
0: So this is a good segue into your book, the war, the war on ivermectin, which comes out in October. I think the we hope.
1: um, I have to be honest, we're we're just at the end. I think I'm submitting. uh, We think first final draft this week, and then, yeah, I I hope. It's probably going to be mid to late October. But yeah, it's, it's coming. I've blown a lot
0: Halloween of Halloween time. Halloween.
1: Yeah, let's let's call it Halloween. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's a scary book for sure. To be honest, <laughs> it really is. It really is. You know,
0: I mean, why, why is it a scary book? But before you answer that, yeah. you know, there's two, uh, I guess, not pioneers, but people you think of when you talk about it, remember, and you and Tess Laurie. Yeah. So and obviously she's not a clinician. You are. So, you know, I'm so glad you wrote a book on this. Yeah. So why is your book scary?
1: Because um, it details. I mean, so the, the, the theme of the book is really centered around an article called the disinformation playbook, which is published on the website of the Union for Concerned Scientists and you know, what happened, Joe, is after my ivermectin testimony, right, which went viral, it, which brought a lot of attention to the FLCCC, our work. And, and our- which testimony was this? Does- so this was December 8th of 2020. Um, you know, I testified in a hearing. Uh, I was invited by Senator Ron Johnson.
0: I thought and, that was on you. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, on early treatment. And, yeah. you know, Peter and I think it was Harvey presented the week before on hydroxychloroquine. And, boy, did they get attacked. I mean, New York Times, you know, they called Senator Johnson the snake oil salesman of the Senate. You know, I mean, it was fearsome, the the attacks they endured. When I testified a week later on the importance and the incredible data supporting ivermectin, the video went viral and and it got a lot of attention. and, And suddenly our organization got a lot of attention. Our protocols were looked into. Doctors started prescribing ivermectin and You know, I thought this is how naive I was, Joe. I literally thought that like we were providing a solution, if not a solution, a major intervention that would alter the trajectory of the pandemic without question. It would reduce cases and deaths and hospitalizations. And now you have an effective early outpatient treatment. And I thought that news would be welcome. I didn't think there was going to be a ticker tape parade necessarily, or maybe I did. That was one possibility. I thought maybe, you know, we, we would, you know, the FLCCC would come out as heroes. Um, And really it was Paul who identified the data. You know, I always have to you know, say that it was really Paul that identified the data signal first. He said, wow, you got to see what these studies are starting to show. And I jumped in right behind him. I was the first author of that comprehensive review paper. I worked a lot and I got deeply expert on, on ivermectin, but what happened in the next few months is that like everything started going sideways and i could not figure it out i saw hit pieces and i mean to you this is not news you're probably like yep i i i've seen that before predictable
0: um, highly predictable,
1: uh, entirely pred- and and thing is i didn't know like I, i'll tell you how little i knew i didn't know that what i was really doing i, I only learned retrospect is i was literally Bringing forth data supporting the efficacy of a generic drug. Now that is poking the bear. And when we, you know, when I say poking the bear, what is anathema to the pharmaceutical industry and their whole business model is they cannot have generic off patent drugs become standard of care. It obliterates the market for their pricey new pills. And even, I didn't, I didn't know I was stepping into a war.
0: Well, it's even worse than that. Yes, it, that was true, but you. Impacted the potential possibility that this intervention could remove the emergency use authorization for these. Oh, I, I was getting that,
1: you know, that. I was, was
0: literally hundreds of billions of dollars in profit. So,
1: so Joe, that's what I say. So Joe, I say that never before in history. Again, I didn't know this at the time. I'm just like a doctor's, like, hey, this thing works. Um, I didn't know that I was literally introducing. A medicine that in the history of pharma, I don't think any single medicine threatened as many markets (laughs) and campaigns in history. The only other medicine that did that was hydroxychloroquine, but they already killed hydroxychloroquine in 2020. Mm -hmm. And, And I was coming out now with ivermectin and it threatened, like you said, hundreds of billions in perpetuity for these insanely lethal vaccines monoclonal antibodies, remdesivir, paxlovid, molnupiravir, all of the markets for their novel new pills to enter. I mean, I don't think any medicine has ever threatened that much of a market, right? And so so the point of the, the what I was trying to answer is that Everything got real weird. You know, we were getting attacked. I saw, you know, I would do an interview. I did an interview with the Associated Press. And the article that came out, I mean, I literally almost had a heart attack. I was like, what the hell? (laughs) You know, I talked to this reporter. Like, this is how stupid I was back then, Joe. I mean, I talked to this reporter. I very
0: carefully went through. I wouldn't call it stupid, just naive.
1: Naive. Yes. And, and I, yeah, that's probably much. Yes. And, and, you know, Brett Weinstein has this
0: really cool phrase
1: and I'm going to butcher it, but he says, um, you know, every time I think I'm being too cynical, I'm actually being naive, (laughs) you know? and, And, and when he said that, I was like, because I am like so cynical now, and I'm still learning that I'm not cynical enough because I'm discovering a web of influences that you know purportedly would only be ushered by a conspiracy theorist now. And I there's an unending string of conspiracy theories that are being proven true. So like I don't know what's going on. In the world. But 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 here's here's the transformative experience was that everything got real weird. Um, you know, I saw unending attacks on ivermectin and it was coming in different directions. I saw academia getting all you know, hot and bothered, you know, it's a fringe medicine, it's unproven, the trials are small. I saw all these narratives, and I didn't know they were narratives at the time. I thought people were being stupid. So that's the thing. I was like, I said, like, why are they being so stupid? It was almost like um the first transformative experience of COVID was in like March of 2020, at the end of March, when I suddenly heard that the FDA was recommending that you restrict hydroxychloroquine use to the hospital. And I remember when I heard that, I was like, that's really stupid. Why are they being so stupid? I was like, why would they restrict the drug to a phase of illness in which it's likely to have almost no impact? We all know antivirals. You know first days of therapy and I was like that's really stupid and then I went about my day you know now you know I I see everything I see everything they do um even now even before they do it I mean because they're really predictable and and it's because of what I learned and I put this in book so what happened was in March of 2020 I got an email from a guy named Dr. William B. Grant I don't know if you know him but he's one of the Oh,
0: sure I published a paper with
1: him oh gosh of course you did <laughs> He is so nice. And he sent me, and I didn't know who he was. I had no idea who he was. He wrote me a two-line email. He wrote, Dr. Corey, what they're doing to ivermectin is what they've done to vitamin D for decades. And then he sent me a link to that disinformation playbook article. And it's a short article, not a lot of text. It's just very well designed. They have little diagrams, and then they have examples of disinformation campaigns. And they describe the five plays, which they name after American football plays, right? And these are the tactics of farming. And I read the article. and I was like, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> like suddenly, Joe, the world made sense. And, and not in a good way. It was very ugly because I was like, that's what's going on. There's a massive disinformation campaign directed at Ivermectin. And, and from that moment on, Everything that happened every day, I, it was almost like I got pushed and tied to a front row seat for a horror movie. Literally, I had to watch a horror movie unfold ever since. Millions dying, hospitals overflowing everywhere. And there was a drug that could prevent that and it could avert a catastrophe. It would have definitely either put the brakes or stop the vaccine campaign obsession, which is in my mind, one of history's greatest humanitarian catastrophes, it's a holocaust out there with these vaccines. And that's that's easily proven from just immense sources of data now, right? As you know, from life insurance data, disability data, excess mortality data, even now we're seeing birth rates dropping. Um, and, and so... You know, so so the theme of the book is centered around that, and it's it's my experiences and knowledge of what they do, and and the reason why I think the book is important is that it it, it's almost as important as Bobby Kennedy's book, right? Um, The Real Anthony Fauci, where he literally, in a highly referenced fashion, documents the control of medicine and the medical sciences, and how it's 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 literally controlled by pharma. And, and, and they, and how depraved that control is, Joe, they do not care. They do not care. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry is a documented criminal industry, as you know, you know, they've released many, many products that have called caused untold deaths. And what do they do? They try to suppress that evidence for as long as possible. They get caught, they pay a fine, they do it again. Right. And, and I also didn't know that, Ivermectin was just the latest of a decade of repurposed drugs, or as you would, uh, as you know, simple therapies that, you know, don't cost anything, like going out in the sun with your shirt off and in shorts for an hour a day. Like, you know, it's only the latest in. In, in decades. I mean, in oncology, we know things that work really well for cancer and those are absolutely suppressed and distorted. Um, uh, cardiology, uh, psychiatry, you, you know, it, the list is endless. And, and so I started to learn about how pharma practices disinformation. And and, and I think uh, the, the most Terrible disinformation campaigns, which caused more deaths than any other, were the ones on hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Um, I, I lived through the ivermectin one. Um, you know, Peter Peters lived through both. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> you know, I mean, he he was out there early, uh, and 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 he him and Harvey, you know, and and America's frontline doctors. I mean, they they fought for, for. that war in 2020. I mean, Paul and I were so busy in the ICUs, we were focusing on our hospital protocol. We didn't have an early treatment protocol until. We identified ivermectin. We didn't believe hydroxychloroquine worked back then. We we were
0: we were yeah. we were because buying what they were selling. I, I, you were skewed. I, say it again. Your views were skewed because you were using it too late.
1: Well, no, well, no, I didn't use it in the hospital at all. I I, I didn't. I wasn't doing early treatment. We were just we were buried in ICUs working, and we were yeah. focusing on that. But what we knew of hydroxychloroquine, we didn't believe it worked because we were still buying what they were selling. Going back to this topic of the journals, like I mm-hmm. will tell you. You know, we were still looking for the looking to those high-impact journals for really what the, the the crystallization of what the evidence you know showed. And they were all screaming, it doesn't work. I mean, obviously, when you look wider and spend some time doing a deep dive, it's not very long where until you figure out, wow, it really does work. But you know, th- again, it's part of a transformation, Joe. We, we were extremely naive and we were still. We still have an implicit faith and trust in the journals and the agencies. You know, we, we have none now. Um, I You know, I've seen now two years of every policy being omitted from those agencies. And I, I ask everyone to do this thought exercise. Ask yourself, what would a pharmaceutical company want that policy to say? And that's that's your answer. Like, for instance, when they ignored natural immunity. Of course you should ignore <laughs> community. It's more arms to jab. You, you know, it, it it's just terrible. But um, you know, so the, the book is it's not only about all of the tactics that I witnessed and it's also about my personal journey. Um, you know, I, I've been through a lot, you know, I've lost three jobs. Um, you know, one one I left voluntarily, one was mutual, and then the third was a firing. <laughs> so um and and also, you know, like I got to tell you something very little, very few people know, but like my proudest contribution to COVID, at least I thought I I wrote, I thought the best paper of my life. Um, It was a paper that essentially argued that the pulmonary phase of COVID is actually what's called an organizing pneumonia or, or what they used to call boob I can't I can't remember if we talked about this before but you know I wrote a paper with one of the top chest radiologists in the world I consulted pathologists I looked at autopsy data you know even just just the cat scans was in a pattern of organized pneumonia and organized pneumonia is a terrible descriptor for the disease because it suggests that it's an infection. And it's not. Organizing pneumonia is an inflammatory response to a lung injury. And the the gold standard of care is corticosteroids. That's the only thing that's been shown to really reverse organizing pneumonia. And and you know I gave testimony in the Senate in May of 2020, you know, telling the world that it was critical to use corticosteroids in the hospital phase of the disease. And I got attacked by the university of Wisconsin, by the way, you know, another thing that's that, that I learned academic freedom ain't real. (laughs) As Soon as you're a professor with an opinion that goes against orthodoxy or the system, Oh, you're, you're going to feel the pressure,
0: you know, Were you a professor?
1: Uh, I was, I, I, so I was technically an associate professor. I had actually met criteria for professor probably, Two years before I resigned, I didn't have time to put together my promotion pack. No. If you ever go through academia, promotion packets are beasts. You have to like catalog all of your contributions, you know, all of your teaching thing. It's it's just a whole bunch of where you have to write this essay about your teaching philosophy and I just kept putting it off um so anyway, long story short i'm a, I was an associate professor, but I clearly had all the criteria for a professor and one of them is that you needed a national reputation and and I had a not only a national but an international reputation because I was one of the pioneers and world experts in the field of critical care ultrasonography you know i I taught you know a couple of decades of doctors how to use ultrasound to make life-saving diagnoses, and and I wrote a book that's in it's second edition and seven languages. And so, you know, I, I definitely was professor. And anyway, when I gave testimony, uh, my bosses from the dean, you know, they were there, the dean and the chair of medicine were hiding, but they were exerting pressure through my chief. And, and I was in New York at the time, working like a dog, because I had left University of Wisconsin, because I resigned because I said I refused to be a clinical leader. I was the chief of the critical care service, director of the main medical surgical ICU at one of the biggest research institutions in the country. And they were giving me pressure because I was advocating for anticoagulation and corticosteroids. And they didn't want to have anything of it. My chief and chair started started butting into my my daily clinical meetings uh, as a leader with the teams of intensivists, the residents, the fellows. And they started kind of contravening and contradicting some of the things I was suggesting. And I just said, I'm done. I, I refused to see these patients die with lack of treatment because they were telling us to use supportive care only. And for your listeners or viewers, supportive care only is like fluids, food, Tylenol for fever, oxygen and a ventilator. They're, they're not treatments. And. Um, And and so I left there and I was in New York at the time working and I was getting daily calls from my boss telling me not to talk to the press and to talk to the university before I talk to the press. And, you know, what I found out is that there is no such policy as a professor in an academic institution. Not only are you given the freedom to express your opinions, however, in your area of expertise, um, however, and wherever you want but it's encouraged. That's what academics are supposed to do is bring forth expertise and knowledge to the public and to society. And yet I was feeling a lot of pressure on that first testimony on corticosteroids. Now I was vindicated on corticosteroids. It's it's now the standard of care around the world. However, Joe, do you know what the standard of care uh, dose is? They're using six milligrams of dexamethasone,
0: which is- which is too low, and you don't like dexamethasone if I ever right. started.
1: Yeah, methylprednisolone is, is far superior in its effects on the
0: lung. And that would be depomedrol? Say it again? Depomedrol.
1: Uh, it's solumedrol, yeah. Solumedrol. Solumedrol, is, solumedrol is the trade name of methylprednisolone. <laughs> but um, the thing is about organizing pneumonia is it's well known that in fulminant cases, like whited out lungs on a ventilator, You needed what's called polstosteroids, which is like a thousand milligrams for three days in a row. Six milligrams of DEX is equivalent to about 32 milligrams of methylprednisolone. You know, we were starting people and being a, at 80. Later on, I started higher. I, I was, because I was in the ICU and they were kind of way down the line and I was, and they weren't getting good steroids in the hospital. That's why they were coming to the ICU. And, and so the, some of the hospitals were out of the ICU. I was trying to communicate to the hospitals, guys, you got to up your steroid doses, you know, because what would what, what happen after Delta, Joe, is I couldn't recover them anymore. Like mm. by the time they got, like, it was weird. It was different. Like Delta, especially late phase Delta, I started seeing patients refractory to even the math plus protocol. I was using every mm-hmm. element and I wasn't turning them around anymore where we had been turning them around. And, and so, it, you know, it, it got better at the next hospital I was at because the hospitals did listen to me. The, a couple of the intensivists were really interested in my data and they changed their protocol to higher doses and in, you know, on the wards. Um, and so. So how many people,
0: it, how many people did you were under your care that died because they weren't given the appropriate uh, therapies prior to your management?
1: Um, Well, it's my belief that everyone who died, uh, that was the case is that was under treatment. But, you know, I will say this in New York, I did five weeks in a COVID ICU that was full 16 patients, almost every single one on a ventilator. Um, At that time, the majority were dying because they weren't even using steroids. Now, when I got there, I, I can, you know, the intensivists have been fighting with the infectious disease experts. Um, the intensivists wanted to give steroids and the infectious disease who had control of those therapeutic committees that were springing up in all the hospitals, they were like very anti-steroids because they're infectious. I hate infectious disease doctors, by the way. I, my whole career. <laughs> I very rarely called an infectious disease consult because they practice a weird medicine. They have a weird perspective on disease. But um, what I found, horrible is that they were influencing what we were doing in an ICU. They're not intensivists. We're not asking them a question on how to recover these patients with massive lung injuries, Um, but it was controversial and it was suppressed when I got there and I'm a loudmouth. And by the way, I went back to the hospital where I was the program director of their fellowship for three years. um, And I essentially ran their ICU with a, with a colleague for like eight to 10 years. And so when I came back, it was really kind of fun. Like everybody was so happy to see me mostly because they were exhausted they had been working like like dogs for months no days off long hours and in terrible conditions i mean massive dying i mean most people in the hospital at that point they 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 weren't responding to supportive care only um and and so there i started using steroids and i turned a couple around but they they were they were late um and and the hospitals weren't using steroids at the time so but then when i later on when it became standard of care like for instance i was in milwaukee and and there I was having better success, um, especially with the hospital. So it, it just things kind of changed overall. So I don't know how many died because of lack so of care.
0: It would be dozens or hundreds. What do you think?
1: Oh, we would. So in uh, for me, it would be up to up to a hundred. Because remember, in critical care, our services are a little bit yeah. smaller. But I, I would sure. say somewhere between 100 and 150 uh, that I personally was in That's charge right. of, and I was watching them not respond, yeah. and I knew it was because lack of treatment.
0: Yeah. That's got to, that has got to eat on you. I mean, just no. I mean, that's why you go into medicine to help people and, and to have your hands tied and see them pass. And, and to teach, to teach. Yeah.
1: I was trying to teach. I was showing evidence. I was showing like my organizing pneumonia paper. I was showing like, you know, I was showing data, showing that the steroids worked and that was critical in lung injury. And, and, you know, yeah. nobody listened because because they, they it, 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 it's so odd. I mean, they were still just listening to the age. Everything, all eyes were to the to the feds all of a sudden. Like like those guys were like the gods of science and knowledge, and and there was there was no clinical experts in those. They
0: things. still are for the most part.
1: <laughs> they, yeah, no, there is still an implicit. I I hope, Joe. My hopes to talk about something positive is you know with that book detailing the tact. Not like the book's going to change the world, but. What's happening now is the truth is coming out. And what I hope will be exposed is just the deep rot and control of our health system by the pharmaceutical and the the rapaciousness, the depravity. They don't care. And they have caused the humanitarian catastrophe. And I, I hope. That when that gets exposed, and like my book, it's almost like a teacher's manual for how they do this. Because I saw everything they pulled and how they did, it and how successful they were. You know, the fire plays the blitz, harass the scientists that come out with inconvenient science. You know, the diversion, inject uncertainty, oh, inject out where there is not. So these little editorials and these crappy trials that were showing up. You know, um, uh, the 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 fix where they literally capture researchers and influence them to put out opposition research, you know, and then they captured a colleague of mine. You know, I was working with Andy Hill. He was the lead researcher for the WHO and Unitaid team that was looking at repurposed drugs. And I I knew Andy, you know, he, he, he knew Ivermectin worked. He had studied six repurposed drugs. This was like the seventh. None of the others were showing benefit. He was like, wow, he was impressed with the data signal. And now he literally publishes papers that are that that criticize the evidence space as either fraudulent or low quality.
0: Do you know that these strategies go back to the nineteen fifties? I wrote a book wow. on, on EMF and uh, there is a public release. EMF? EMF, yeah. That what's it, EMF? Electromagnetic Electromagnetic Frequencies. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's called EMF <laughs> because that's <laughs> another source of yeah, it's an advanced topic, but anyway, in, in researching that book, I went back to the tobacco industry in the 1950s. They hired a, a PR agency called Hills and Knowlton, who literally established all the the strategies you discussed, and the tobacco industry used it very, very effectively to continue for another 50 years yep. the use of their 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 cancer causing strategy. Uh, <laughs> Product. Yeah. Protect their lethal product. Yeah. Yeah. So then, then of immense profits, immense profits. (laughs) The telecommunications industry did the same thing in the '90s. They used the same. They actually hired the same PR firm to do it, and they're still successful. Uh, Unlike tobacco, which was finally recognized, understood to be this massive cause of cancer, that EMF exposure from cell phones and Wi-Fi is still going on, and we're not going to see this epidemic of deaths and uh, disease. For another decade or two because just like smoking it takes a long time for the damage to accumulate before people start dropping
1: yeah and, and i i do talk about that 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 really i i talk about how disinformation tactics were pioneered by the tobacco industry and used hey. very effectively and and yeah and and you know it's what the important part of that is like how it ended right so it ended by really as i understand attorneys general Across yes. the country, finally collaborating and bringing action against this industry and and, and not only winning sell, settlements, but I think, you know, limiting their abilities to practice disinformation, right? Like through media and advertising and all of that. And so yeah, no more cartoon characters for the kids, right? From, you know, Joe Camel and stuff. So, you
0: know. <laughs> hey, to sell it, people should be free to smoke. I'm a firm believer in that. If they want to, they're they're informed of the risk. But yep. they weren't. They were being they had massive disinformation campaigns to the fact point where physicians like you and I were endorsing the product. <laughs> and they were they were being four out
1: of five doctors say lucky strike is you know <laughs> the best cigarette.
0: You know, that that isn't disinformation. I don't know what is. But I want to get back to the ivermectin because you're one of the world's leading experts on this. And I'm wondering from your book and your research you've done on it, what would you um Use is the best example clinically to prove that ivermectin works. I, I'm thinking, would it be the Uttar Pradesh experience in uh, India? or no, there because, more powerful? So I wrote a substack on Uttar Pradesh.
1: I think it's the best example. I don't think it's the best thing to argue with because, okay. you know, it's not, you know, what they did in Uttar Pradesh, not Uttar Pradesh, but what the entire world did in their media is they suppressed any discussion that central to their program was the use of ivermectin. And I wrote two substacks. They're almost unbelievable to read because the extent to which the word ivermectin was censored when talking about what happened in Uttar Pradesh is is nearly unimaginable. Um, I mean, you had major newspapers, you even had the WHO writing a paper praising Uttar Pradesh for their program treatment and ivermectin were not mentioned it was all about their contact tracing so so yeah uh, uterpreness i don't think is the best for me it's what happened in the city of itajai in brazil um it's mm. a city where of, of two hundred twenty thousand people and in june of 2020 they formulated a program and they blasted it you know through the media to all the citizens of the city that They were going to start a program of ivermectin prophylaxis, um, where you would get, you know, take it four days a month. I think it was days one and two and 15 and 16. Um, And anyone interested in the program could come to a visit. They set up tents and centers, you know, and they have a very sophisticated electronic system. Their whole health system is, is, is database electronic clean data, you could not fill out a data form unless it was completely filled, you know, and they had ways so like, if you had a nonsense number, like someone was 300 years old, like you couldn't do that. So it was really high quality data. And it was comprehensive. And of the 159,000 people who actually entered the program, 113,000 elected to take ivermectin. And that, and then when you analyze the data and my colleague, Flavio Cattagiani, who's to me, one of the greatest doctors in COVID in history, I think his efforts and what he knows, I mean, he, he is, I think the world expert in in the therapeutic aspects of COVID. Um, he helped save a lot of lives during Delta when we were struggling uh, as an outpatient. He, he's the one who kind of uh, uncovered the importance of anti-androgen therapy and severe disease. Um, anyway. So he did this paper with a colleague named Lucy Kerr. I was a co-author because I helped them kind of put it together. But the 113,000 versus I think like 50,000 or 49,000 that didn't. The 113,000 were older, sicker, fatter, way more cardiovascular disease, diabetes. They were, and obviously why, right? They were probably more worried of the impacts of their health, right? And so when you look at that comparison. I mean, there's a negative, massive negative confounders, right? Massive negative confounders. Despite those confounders, even when you didn't propensity match, these. Insanely positive benefits of the ivermectin group. I mean, they they flat out died much less. I think it was seventy percent less risk of dying, sixty eight percent risk of uh, less risk of hospitalization, and fifty percent less risk of getting COVID. Um, and that that was in the sickest of the sick in that city. And then when you did propensity matching, the the you know when you really match them for like you know age, I mean all those all those things, it was it was even greater. And then there's a follow up study which is astounding. Where Flavio uh, and Kerr, what they did with their statistician is they were able through pharmacy records and dispensing of the medicine, they were able to split the ivermectin group into into two, regular ivermectin users, those who took all their pills, irregular, those who missed doses, and then those that not. And when you look at the regular uh, users, like the ones who were most adherent to the protocol, there was a hundred, no one went to the hospital there's 100% reduction in hospitalization and a 90% uh, less risk of dying. So some people died uh, during that period, but no one went to the hospital if they took ivermectin regularly. I mean, it's astounding. I mean, you're talking about a huge amount of people. and So that to me is probably one of the most powerful data sources. And that was just prevention. Here's the other bizarre thing, because I had to confirm this several times with Flavio, but at the time they were doing that trial, they were not using ivermectin in treatment it was just prophylaxis so if you got sick and went to the hospital they were doing supportive care only like the, the the people who controlled the hospitals i think it was run by some sort of religious order that they did not want to use ivermectin so so when you see that trial when it accomplished that was the minimum of what ivermectin could have come the minimum cuz they weren't even using it you got sick you know you were you were on your own so Uh, By the way, if if on that question, Joe, I could do this for an hour. I could talk about all the other papers that, that, that I mean, it's such a it's, you know, I was talking to Paul about this the other day. I've never seen a more proven therapy in any disease model, which they successfully got everyone to believe is a horse dewormer used by unvaccinated conspiracy theorists.
0: Like Joe Rogan.
1: Like Joe Rogan, like me like
0: the FLCCC, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, at this point, uh, we're, we're almost post-pandemic, it seems. Um, what would your, what, what are your, have you revised your recommendations on ivermectin? Maybe just give us your most current view as to what the ideal dose is for A, for prophylaxis, if you're concerned, and then B, for treatment.
1: Yeah, so- Right now, we recommend for prophylaxis for those who feel they need to prophylax. And I got to tell you, now I think it's just a different landscape. Now we have milder variants, lots of natural immunity. I, I got to tell you, in my practice, most of my patients, I don't really tell them to take ivermectin regularly. I, I just.
0: What about those who are suffering from long haul?
1: Oh, oh, that's a different story. That's the that's my first line and mainstay of treatment for long haul. Okay, it's, it's the most. Frequently effective therapy. Um, I wow. do have in my practice a minority who are uh ivermectin non-responders, but the majority respond in either small or large ways. So so why,
0: think, you. why do you think that is? Why do you think that is?
1: So I I knew you were mind. gonna ask that because you're super smart and you like mechanisms and you study deeply. But here's the here's the challenge with answering that is ivermectin has about 20 different therapeutic mechanisms of action oh, wow. Right? Wow. and so really telling you how i think it's working would be a little bit of a guesswork but I, I will say two of them the two things that i think are most impactful is that ivermectin is one of the most tightly binding drugs to the spike protein From all of these in silico studies, when they look at at a catalog of medicines, like which one most tightly conforms and binds, ivermectin is at the top of that list every time. So if there's circulating spike or spike being extruded from you know diseased or dying cells, the binding of ivermectin spike would mitigate further impact. So that's that's what I think is one of the main ones. The second one is that it repolarizes macrophages from the m1 to the m2 subtype we know the monocytes and macrophages Hmm. are activated and you know M1 is the hyperinflammatory, M2 is the hypo, and and I think that that repolarizing and, and that that anti-inflammatory impact, and and then the rest of the mechanisms are the other twenty that it does. You know, reduces production of cytokines and VEGF, and um, you know all, all sorts of downstream effects. So, um, so,
0: what what type of dosing do you like for the long haulers? Then we'll go for prophylaxis and treatment. So- so I'm glad you asked
1: that because I have, um, I, I did, I didn't know what dose in the beginning, you know, I was, I, I do it daily. So I put everyone on a daily. I first
0: started at point really, two. that's a difference.
1: Oh, absolutely. Oh, so for long haul is daily for sure. I and mean, I'll tell you what happens in those that respond, you know, in many of them when they're doing much better. And then we mm-hmm. say, okay, let's see if we can back off now. You know, I try to either increase the frequency or lower the dose symptoms come back.
0: Interesting. Within
1: days. So, like my patients who really respond to ivermectin, they know don't mess with the dosing, uh, dosing of ivermectin. Now, but I've, had a, I've had a couple of people graduate
0: from. Let me, let me just ask this question because I think it's going to, I think it differs. Is Are you noticing a difference between those who have the long haul COVID who were jabbed or those who got it from the natural infection?
1: so there my patients are rarely pure anymore meaning you know my diagnosis of those two syndromes is a constellation of symptoms that develop in temporal association to one of those events so if it was covid and the symptoms all began you know in the weeks after covid that's a long hauler if it happens after the vaccine and vaccine injured they come in three subtypes which is their symptoms began the day of and never went away um, either, or they had a rough time with the three days of vaccine, but then the symptoms start like week later. And then I have somewhere it starts four to five weeks later, but, but it's always in temporal association to one of those events. But what I find now is my long haulers who got vaccinated, they got worse. My vaccinated who got COVID, their symptoms got worse. Um, and, and so it's just this accumulating exposure to the spike protein. And so, so that's why I said, like my patient population is the they've all had one or two of those events, whatever the first trigger was, you know, I'll call them a long hauler, but, um, uh, but yeah, they, they respond similarly. Uh, remind me, what was the exact question that you asked Joe well, about the dosing? The dosing. Oh, dosing. Yeah. That's so dosing. I
0: started at that point
1: daily, right? Yeah. It's daily. So that's important because, I have seen patients who've come to me who've seen other providers who've been trying to treat their syndrome and that, and they're clearly looking at our protocols but I'm seeing like really strange dosing like once a week, three times a week at kind of low doses and so I started at 0.2 mg per kg daily then I moved to 0.3 and months ago I was trying to do a little bit of dose ranging you know I would try to 0.4 a little bit higher And I wasn't impressed with the impacts of the higher doses, so I kind of just stuck at a a moderate dose. However, in the past month, I've now had three experiences where patients responded to a higher dose. And so now, when I see patients in follow-up, one of my next trials of therapy is I double the dose. I actually go to 0.6. And so, for instance, just this week, I did it with someone, and it didn't work. She found no benefit from the 0. 0.6. I went back to 0. 0.3. Um, so, I mean, if it doesn't, if the higher dose doesn't have an impact, I'm not going to use it. But I had one patient who was like so happy when I increased the dose. Now, when I see her next, you know, I might bring her down a little bit. But I mean, we, we do have fair amount of data uh, of long-term daily use being well tolerated by yeah, Once a day dose? Once a day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, just once a day once a day um so so yeah so your question on dosing you know the only way to answer is what i'm doing <laughs> i don't know what the real dose is i've got to be humble about that i'm, oh, I'm just talk. telling what i'm learning from my experiences
0: this is a brand new syndrome 100 percent. 100 so you're at the forefront of helping identify which strategies are effective so thank yep. you for doing that
1: i want to talk about um the, the, we in the FLCCC, we're putting on a medical conference.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. When is that going to be?
1: So it's uh, October 15th and 16th. Okay. Um, it, the title is Understanding and Treating uh, Spike Protein Induced Diseases. Oh,
0: wow. That's a good one.
1: for anyone Yeah. And, and so we have a lineup of speakers of folks like you, um, you know, uh, deeply studied in a lot of uh, treatment of cr- complex chronicle, uh, chronic illnesses. Um and uh and, and with from different specialties, like some have a very strong endocrinologic perspective on the disorder, neurologic. Um, I'm showing up as like the clinician, be like almost a conversation like this. I'm just gonna be saying, like, listen, this is how I treat, this is what I've learned helps. Um, and it's not like this is the way to do it, it's just the way I've done it and the successes that I've had. Um, I know of other doctors who have different approaches. I mean, there's a lot of ways to approach this disease. And so. Um, It's really important. It really is directed at the treating providers Um, because, you know, Joe, one of the sadnesses of the many sadnesses in the health and the many abject failures is they literally don't recognize vaccine injury. There's no clinic for the vaccinated by design, by design. (laughs) design. design. And so they're abandoned. And I'm going to be crude here. They're pissing off the doctors because all of these patients Poor patients are showing up. The doctors have no idea what's wrong. them. They have no knowledge of the mechanisms. They have no knowledge of what some effective therapies can be. And so they're not treating these patients. And they're abandoned and gaslit. And some of the doctors actually get angry when the patients relate their symptoms to the vaccine. They don't want to hear it. They don't want a vaccine injured in their practice. I have numbers of patients where the physician literally told them, you don't need to schedule a follow-up And so for those who still have a shred of humanity and empathy uh, and understanding that the spike protein is a toxin that causes immense amounts of disease, I hope they attend and or watch the lectures that we'll have to stream afterwards. But, you know, and, and we're coming at this very humble. I mean, we don't have, there's very few trials on therapies in these two syndromes. And so it's really about clinical knowledge, expertise, and experiences um, from this disease and other diseases. And I actually am looking forward to it because I want to learn. I want to listen to those other speakers and hear about what they think and how they approach this. And, um, you know, it, it's, I think it's going to be a really tremendous conference. And I'll, I'll tell you another joke is I think a lot of people, lay people will show up
0: because- Where's it going to be at?
1: Oh, Orlando. Orlando, oh, okay. or at the Gaylord, something Gaylord. That's the center uh, convention. Yeah,
0: Gaylord Conference. It's the one that's all- under one roof and they've got the little rivers inside. <laughs> yep.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, apparently it's fun. I've never been, but um. so, so it's really important. And I think lay people actually will attend because here's another interesting thing that's happened in COVID. You probably noticed this is that I find legions of lay people who are much more deeply studied and knowledgeable on what's really going on. Not only on the, even the medicine and physiology side, you know, they didn't go to medical school, but they're deeply studied and they read, they read papers, they, they, they watch They read a lot of data sources. And I, so I think it's actually would be of interest to lay people who want to learn how to either help themselves or help their friends and colleagues, just like they did with COVID. You know how I many lay, lay people like passed around our protocols and tried to get their friends and relatives, you know, access to the medicines yeah. on our protocol. They save lives. They save lives by doing that.
0: No, that was the strategy for my newsletter. <laughs> I was targeting the consumers, not the physicians. Of course. Although med- many healthcare professionals wound up looking at my stuff, it was really, you know, my take on it was to to translate the medical jargon into into language that the average person could understand and apply to themselves, and then spread the message to their to their friends and hopefully their physicians. So. Absolutely, that's the way to go.
1: So, yeah, you, you, can I just say thank you for that, uh, Joe? I mean, you have a, built a, a longstanding credibility and a platform that people go to for you do exactly what you set out to do is help people improve and protect their health. And, you know, your contribution in helping to disseminate our protocols, I think, made a major impact. I really do. And I want to thank you for it.
0: Oh, you're welcome. That's what we're here for, <laughs> in my view. So, I'm just delighted to do that and even more honored that. Uh, New York Times and CNN and such has decided to direct so much energy to discrediting me because they perceive that I'm so influential I'm just well, that,
1: that's when you know you're that. over the target Joe right yeah. when they come after you you know they're getting scared you know yeah. the, you know the for other sure. side
0: of for sure so uh, I want to transition if it's okay with you to a topic that's near and dear to my heart which is medical fraud especially as it relates to the jab and you did a really Great post on your Substack, uh, I think last week uh, regarding the Tots uh, for Tots? No, this is this this one is about the court ordered FOIA request that you know Pfizer initially wanted to have their data from their trials yeah. for seventy five years, and then one of the tranches of data that was released showed how they were hiding the data on pregnancy and uh do you recall that one? Reading oh yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah 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 no I, I wrote another one on on the absurd medical fraud supporting the jabs for toddlers as well i mean that's yeah well, we
0: can go into that let's do this one first because yeah, i don't recall sure. reading that one but because but but i do that's the other one and both of those actually i hope to god someday are used in a court of law to uh to basically, uh, get a, a judgment against Pfizer for fraud, which will which will essentially eliminate all the liability they have, which should be over a trillion dollars in damages. Absolutely, yeah. So, because this is this is clear and outright fraud. So let's go into the fertility or the fertility and abortion spontaneous abortion rate. I think they had like two hundred and seventy pregnancies in the trial. And they only reported on 38 because they never sought to, but to, that it was important to understand what happens to pregnant women who get the jab.
1: Yep. Yep.
0: So yeah, they, they
1: followed, they only followed 32 pregnancies where they had knowledge of the outcome of the pre- pregnancy, right? So out of 32, 28, Led to a fetal demise, either from a miscarriage slash spontaneous abortion or a stillbirth or a premature birth that where the the the, the fetus or baby died and which is an astonishing it's eighty seven point five percent rate now that was not really new data because even in the original trial published in the New England Journal. They pulled a sleight of hand trick, which numbers of people identified. Now, it was fact-checked to death and that we were all wrong. But what they reported in their table on their trial is that there was a miscarriage rate of 13%. However, when you normal. look... That's a normal. That's a which normal. is normal. Exactly. is normal. However, when you look how they calculated that 13%, they included a huge number of women in their third trimester, Miscarriage, It's not called a miscarriage in your third trimester. It's <laughs> that's called a stillbirth. So when you actually looked at the first trimester births, you had a seventy-two percent rate of miscarriage if you got vaccinated in your first trimester. So, so that eighty-seven point five isn't a fluke. We already saw that signal in the original data. And now, you know, Naomi, Naomi Wolf and Daily Cloud, I mean, they are doing, you know, they have like 3,000 volunteers. They're combing through thousands of pages. In fact, I just spent two or three weeks working on uh, articulating the executive summary because, you know, her report is 29 chat. I mean, no one's going to read that. And so we pulled out the most damning of the data. And there's even more worrisome miscarriage data. And, and then, Joe, you, you know that in that post, I linked that miscarriage data to the birth rates that we see dropping inexplicably, suddenly from one month to another. Birth rates don't drop month to month. They'll drop over the year. There's little variations. But you're seeing historically unprecedented drops beginning right around nine months after the peaks of their vaccination campaigns. Mm-hmm. And like Taiwan, in one month, had a 27% drops in births. And, and so, like, you know, and that's not just Taiwan, Sweden, you know, Norway, Hungary. Um, and one guy on Substack, a guy named Igor Chudov, I don't know if you saw, but he did an analysis on Hungary where he matched their the, the counties or the regionals, uh, the regional or like, I guess, the states in Hungary. He matched their vaccination rates with the birth rates. And there was a pretty good relationship high because, you know, almost like in this country, right? Like the red States kind of had lower vaccination rates than the blue States. And in Hungary, they had kind of similar regional differences and there was a pretty good relationship with vaccines and birth rates.
0: Further confirmation of the uh, depopulation strategy because it appears to be working. It, it,
1: it, and that, that's, that's the thing that pisses, you know, that I just can't understand. Like, they figured out how to do that. I know they wanted to do that, but they figured out how
0: to do that. Well, and Gates, they, they, Gates they, with they, the uh, with the HCG integrated into tetanus shot in, in Africa, I believe it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that Andrew Wakefield did it. Yep. yep. Yeah. So they they have a history of doing this.
1: Yes. Uh Yes. They. Yeah. And and when you look at Bill uh, Gates' history, I mean, he he literally grew up in a household with like. One of the most major eugenicists, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that was. I mean, there was an obsession in that family with eugenics and and even depopulation, right? And so it's it, it's terrifying how much power these yeah. that that so- sociopaths have. I mean, you, you know, one thing I like to always bring up because I, I learned this from Matt Crawford, another brilliant mind who writes on Substack and has done immense analyses on numerous aspects, but. He wrote this one post about how sociopaths, like in prison, there's about a 15 to 20% rate of prisoners who are literally sociopaths, right? No empathy, no regard for others, uh, capable of immense cruelty. But purportedly in the C-suites of corporations, it's also about 15% because sociopaths are really good at making money and gaining power because they will do that Without any regard for their fellow humans or outcomes. And so they get hired and they rise high because they make money. They know how to lie, cheat, steal to make money. And so when you think of it that way, because you know, when you when you see these corporate behaviors in so many industries that are so pathologic and depraved, you don't understand how corporations Literally put money above everything else. The welfare there felt like there's no humanity there. And but you have to think that it's probably because there are sociopaths in power at the top, just like in the agencies, right? You don't rise to the top of the HHS or NIH by being a good guy, making uh, objective votes on your conscience on the data. You know, and then let's transition to the to the toddlers. You know, when you look at those two committees, unanimous votes in favor of toddlers, when the data was nil, the data was nil. If anything, you look at it, 4,500 kids enrolled and 3000 disappeared. Why did they leave that? You can't even apply that trial to anything. And it showed literally a nil nil impact. If anything, it showed that it was harmful and worse. You got more COVID. You get more severe COVID. And yet you had n- unanimous committees, the gods of science and knowledge on those committees unanimously in favor of approving injections for toddlers based on some of the most historically brazen lack of data. I've
0: Was it, was it unanimous? I, I thought on one of the committees that Offit was on. He, that I- was
1: Booster. So I thought that, too. Let's clarify mm-hmm. that because I did a piece on Offit la- last week. When he made those statements uh, that he was nauseated by the data, right. he was referring to the vote
0: on the boosters with oh. by Valentin. Why wouldn't he be uh, consistent?
1: You know, I know. Oh, but when you see the piece I did, I, we did it. We shot a video where. I rebutted every statement he made to that guy Z Dog because oh, that's
0: yeah. so we
1: we dissected thing. that interview and I nailed him on and it's exactly what you said it was inconsistencies and lack of logic and we even brought in we even brought in footage for stuff he had said in prior interviews from like a year ago and it's absolutely damning that this guy voted for the toddler shots it, it's, it's absolutely insane. Anyone who listens to Offit, I mean, you got to understand, that guy is really impaired. Um, He also, uh, he has a patent on the robot. I sued
0: him in the past. I actually sued sued Offit. What did you sue him for? I sued him because he lied about a statement that he's claimed that Barbara Lowe Fisher's son, who Barbara Lowe Fisher started NVIC, National Vaccine Information Center, in the the mid-80s. And he claimed that her son never was vaccine injured, just calling her an outright liar. So, so, unfortunately, figure- it, was, it was thrown out because she, she's considered to be a celebrity of of sorts. So you can lie about celebrities legally.
1: Oh, like a public figure? You,
0: public you, figure? That's yeah, what fig- they call. Yeah, yeah. It,
1: no, I, I know what you meant. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And you're right, public figures. Yeah, they don't have that pr- protection against defamation.
0: No.
1: Um, uh, you probably don't, Joe. Someone could defame you and probably uh, not be able to, you know. No, I'm, I'm
0: confident I wouldn't. So, I, you know, I, I rarely sue, but it just upset me so much that he would have that claim and was actually thrown out. But anyway, yeah, he's a he's a reprehensible figure. For
1: reprehensible, sure. and he comes off as like this affable, well-meaning mm-hmm. academic. But when you look at his actions and behaviors, they're deplorable. Oh, we nailed him about that interview. I, I you know, uh, you know. Yes. The folks, the folks at VSRF, Vaccine Safety Research Foundation, on um, their team with Louisa Clary and Lisa Leahy, they um, they saw how important it was to take down that interview um, because it was so lacking in logic and consistency and, and really kind of obscuring the fact that he had just voted for, for toddler injections. So...
0: Um, so did, were you finished on the, to, the the story with the toddler injections to, with the committee? Because I think they, the only justification they used to have this unanimous vote was, that was a surrogate marker was elevated, which was the increase in antibodies. And somehow this is assuming, I mean, it's, it couldn't be a bigger crock of crap yeah, to use you. this. As a, as a marker for vaccine effectiveness, they couldn't prove anything. Not, not anything, as you mentioned. It was it was negative. It, but, but, people got worse, but there's what their antibodies increase. But that's the thing.
1: They use the antibodies to vote for, it, but yet you actually do have many of those health, public health officials in other forums openly admitting that the antibody is not a marker for protection. But yet they used it to vote for it. I mean, to justify. it justifies. Medical fraud. It's just fraud. And 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 going back to my point, Joe, is that not only do you not lead, you, you don't get to the leadership of those agencies unless you're a sociopath. You don't get put on a committee unless you can play ball. I mean, could you imagine someone voting with their conscience? Like, if I landed on that committee, one vote of no, how many more committees am I going to be invited back on, Joe?
0: Zero. You are fired. You're terminated.
1: Oh, you're done. You're it's done. just
0: a rubber stamp. Yep. To make sure it's, it it's predetermined, like, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. I mean, I think, and for these these new, I, I my understanding is not a week from today, they're going to have a new meeting to approve the new jobs that come out in the fall. And this is despite the fact that the U.S. government has already ordered over 100 million of them, <laughs> million. they've all, they already paid for it. <laughs> you think that they're not going to be approved? you really think they're not going to be approved it's predetermined. no it,
1: you're absolutely right and that's that's the thing like I, I wouldn't say i'm broken joe but like i just the the what i believed I, I i just had much i just i never knew the depths of of the corruption it's it's just it's, you know, in the in the ICU, I'll say we, we were largely free of corrupt influences with the exception of Zygris and this early goal-directed therapy with these catheters. But outside of that, like ICU, I mean, we used time-honored traditional approaches. You know, we became expert at using support machines. And, you know, we did things like, you know, it's not like as polluted as like an internist who give everyone statins and SSRIs, which are total frauds, right? Uh, you, know, it, you know, so like in the ICU, where I don't know. Corrupt influences were were not, you know, they you were insulated from. Insulated, yeah. And and now that I'm as now patient, I see what's happening in medicine and COVID. It's it's. I I don't recognize the field. I I, I ju- and 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 the thing is, what's more scary, Joe, is is that all of the doctors inside that system, I call them system docs, you know, working for the big health systems in hospitals, you know, that are you know, um, JCO regulated, you know, look at all the societies for their guidelines. And, you know, the system docs, they have no idea how much they've been lied to, and they have no idea how many lies they have propagated with arrogance and consistency. You know, I think some are finding out now as they get injured from vaccines, as their family gets injured, as they see deaths. I think some are like having to come to a rude awakening that they've been lied to but that that should be documented in history you had an entire world of physicians vociferously and arrogantly you know pushing shots for a coronavirus despite natural immunity you know one of the worst absurdities i heard is one of my patients who's a pharmacist and she works in a hospital. And she told me at one point, this is like six months ago. She told me that the hospitalists in that hospital were vaccinating COVID patients on discharge. They come in, they survived COVID. And as they leave, sort of like with the flu shots, you know, oh, have you had your flu shot yet? We'll give it to you. They were giving two and a half year old Wuhan protein shots to people who just recovered from either Delta or Omicron.
0: Now, if we didn't kill you in the hospital, give us another Thank chance. You.
1: Yeah, but yeah. I think, but but this the scary part, Joe is. I don't think they were trying to do that. I think they no, were. They, well no, they were They were propagandized and brainwashed. That's the thing. They were so polluted with lies that the, when you look at the behaviors that result, you realize it's all about information. You control the information. You control people's behaviors. And and that's so, what they've been doing for 100 years in medicine.
0: So it sounds like your conversion to medical truth reality occurred within the last two years. And I'm wondering, was it if you. Uh, it if you became awake before you were able, before you, you, I assume you did because the, the vaccines definitely lagged behind the debate on early treatment. So you became awake prior to, you know, like, like Peter McCullough did become awake until afterwards and he got jabbed. I'm, I don't think you got jabbed. Right.
1: Well, actually let me be humble about that. I'm not jab, but I think that was an accident that was just pure luck because after my ivermectin testimony, it was literally the same week they launched the vaccines. Oh.
0: And
1: I had to mutually leave my job because I shook the hell out of the foundations of that hospital <laughs> because they were trying to come back to work, you know the hospital was deluged with people who wanted ivermectin and you know reporters were calling and they were spooked as hell and we had a discussion (laughs) they offered me a new contract which had about eight limitations on my first amendment rights and i said no thank you and bye-bye um so i was unemployed from december until i went back into the icu in may And during that time, I learned about the just unimaginable toxicity and lethality of the vaccines. You know, I have to be honest, Joe, I let my parents get vaccinated in March of 2021. My parents live in Manhattan, and they were saying like none of their friends would invite them, no one would go out to dinner, you know, like they were basically, you know, ostracized from their little social circle. And And at the time, I wasn't that deeply studied on the vaccines. You know, now I am. And I was like, oh, I think maybe the J&J is safer. It's just one shot and it uses an older vector. And so I let them have the J&J. But by April, I was telling everyone who asked, please don't get the shot. Um, And and when I went back into the hospital, it was not yet mandated. So I worked for about six months before it became mandated. Um, And when I told them the day that I told them, because here's another interesting story. The hospital I worked at, from the time that the ICU team hired me, I was a locum tenens. They started getting pressure from administration to get rid of Corey. But we were getting along really well. They love my work. The nurses love me. I was teaching them the stuff about my protocols. And there was a small team. It was really three or four guys. And they said, if Corey goes, we go. So they had my back. But the administration was sending them hit pieces in the media that they came across about me. They, they didn't want my face or persona associated with their hospital. But my team backed me up until November, when the mandate was coming uh, for all healthcare workers. And the CMO of the hospital called me and he said, "He said, listen, I need to know if you're going to get vaccinated because we have to do contingency planning, you know, for the next months. Because you're not going to get vaccinated, you're gone." And I asked him to let me think about it. And two days later, he called me and I said, I'm going to get vaccinated. And I'm going to tell you, Joe, I was going to get a vaccine card, period. <laughs> I was not going to get vaccinated. And I'm going to openly admit that I was willing to be dishonest uh, in, in a face, in an ocean and a, an army of lies and fraud. Um, I'm going to protect myself and my livelihood uh, with a card. Mm-hmm. But once I told him, I said, you know, I decided to get vaccinated. Um I worked that night, went home, and the next day I got a call from the ICU director saying, Pierre, I'm really sorry, but we don't need you anymore. And what he told me, the reason why they don't need me anymore is that they claimed, uh, it was told to him that I had told someone in the emergency room uh, to not get vaccinated. And now it's actually not true. Um, and so I knew it was a made up which is how they get rid of problematic doctors. It's called um it's called um sham what sham sham peer review. Yeah,
0: um, sham peer review, okay.
1: Sham peer review, and that's been practiced for decades to get rid of doctors off staff that they didn't want. He on. wrote about that in his book too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so it was like a mini rapid sham peer review. Now it didn't they didn't need a peer review because I was a locums. You know, it was a contract that they could break at will. Yeah. Um and so it was just a simple phone call like, hey, we heard you did this. And 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 it was it was funny. It wasn't funny, but like, the guy who fired me really liked me. He and I, we had mutual respect. We had deep and rich clinical discussions and he knew something was going on because he said to me, I said, you know, I said, Chris, I, I, I didn't do that. I, I don't know what you're talking about. And then he's like, you didn't. And I was like, no. And then he got off the phone, called me back. And he said, Pierre, I'm sorry. We just can't do it. Because uh, he originally told me that he was letting me go. because He said, listen, we believe in vaccination. We can't have a reputation of someone in our division. Sure. Know you know, and so he he made a credible argument. When I told him I didn't do it, he called me back. And one of the last things he told me, he says, you know, I'm really sorry, but this is war. You know, we're in the middle of a war. And he basically told me that that he's right. That I'm a casual. So he he at least recognized that, that people were coming after me, and that he really couldn't protect me anymore. And so um, I was a casualty of of, of that war. And that was the only job that I really felt bad about mess uh, losing. I I really liked that job. Um
0: You are an insider in the medical profession, Uh, you know, so you have, I've basically been out for two decades, so I I don't really have a lot of contact with other physicians that like you do. So what is your best guess? If you could divide physicians or healthcare professionals, mostly physicians into three groups, one who are aware, like we are, what's your best guess is that percentage Two, the second group, the middle group, which is probably relatively small is is has some hint of awareness, but for personal reasons, choose to not have the courage to step out and join us. And then three, the people who are just absolutely brainwashed and probably true
1: believers. Yeah. Yeah. So I got to tell you, Joe, that um, I think you made an assumption there. That's not true. I am really on the outside now. <laughs> okay. I, I'm with you. I'll tell you.
0: I yeah, but you were not too long ago on the inside.
1: Well, I would say I've been out since November of 2021, yeah. which is coming up on a year. It's a whole year. You know, <laughs> it, it's, but, but what I'm saying is, like, I am not on the front lines. I'm not listening to the conversation. Okay. Like, I, I am not having, you know, And my form, you know, I have a rich network of former trainees. Only one or two reach out to me. I wrote a substandard.
0: Wow. So one, they,
1: one guy. It's associated. One guy, one guy who was just like, he just loves what I'm doing. He totally knows that I'm speaking the truth. And he calls me the Joe Rogan of medicine. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, you know, keep going, keep going. And he told me a few months ago that things were shifting a little bit, that doctors are starting to like not trust so much the stuff that the hospitals are saying. And so I have the feeling that there is a shift um but i'm on the outside the doctors that i meet in uh symposium and conferences and rallies like medical freedom stuff oh, they're, they're all full away I, so like that's i live in a bubble now i live in a bubble of people who know what the truth is um i will say i've written a couple of substacks which i've titled nursing reports from the front lines i have a nurse on the inside she's literally my spy and she acts as one she's very smart very experienced ed and icu nurse And she works for a major academic medical center. And she knows the deep rotten fraud. And she's been giving me these reports of what's happening. And it really does sound like there there is a revolution starting. I mean, they're they're starting to see truths. They're starting to see the fraud around the vaccines. and, and, And in particular, the one fraud which I've been screaming about that I think very few people know about. But Joe, I'll tell it to you briefly. This narrative and this data saying that it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated and everyone in the hospitals was on. You remember that? The 99 percent? Yeah. Even when it's proven not to be 99, it's still a narrative that you will uh, be protected from severe outcomes. Now That is 100 percent false. In fact, the opposite is true. But how did they pull that off? I saw how they pulled it off because I said to myself one day. I admitted a fully vaccinated patient to the ICU. And this was in November of 21, you know, almost a year into the campaign. And I said to myself, how come he's the first person I've ever seen documented as vaccinated in the ICU? And because I knew the data from the other countries, I mean, the the NHS, the UK, Israel had been screaming for months with a preponderance of people in the hospital that were vaccinated. But yet in this country... Everyone in the hospital or in, in, in and and so what I discovered was the they made a process in the hospital in numerous health systems that unless you were vaccinated in a doctor's office within the system where it was electronically entered, even if you had your card or knew your date, the nurse put it buried in an admission note just as like your age and weight and relatives. It never showed up in the documentation status on the front screen. You know what that was called? There was two types of vaccination categories. One was vaccinated. The other one was unknown.
0: Unknown, yeah.
1: And so so now, just like they've corrupted the evidence around vitamin D for decades, now you have an entire country where the actual percentage of vaccinated in the hospital is completely corrupted. And by the way, that process does not exist for any other vaccine. In any other vaccine, you bring in your card; they put it into the, your into your record, right? But suddenly, is... with COVID, they make it. They purposely did not want vaccinated in the hospital. So, what do they do? They made ma- wave the magic wand, and suddenly, no vaccinated were in the hospital.
0: Or very few, a, a very tight. Exactly.
1: Very few, very few.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, it's, they knew this was good, was coming. They were clever and had a strategy to. Obfuscate reality uh, and hide the information.
1: Yeah. So let me tell you one last data point, Joe, that's even more, it's one of the most um, terrifying. But this experienced EDICU nurse, she works a bunch of nights, weekends, and stuff. And she said that there are so many cardiac arrests occurring. Even amongst young people, that, and you know from training, right, when a cardiac arrest comes, the code team comes, you have your crash cart with all your medicines, you know, uh, catheters, you know, defibrillator. She said that so many, cr- and, and, the, and the process for a crash cart is once there's a cardiac arrest, it's immediately taken down to the pharmacy department where they have to restock and, you know, everything has to be, and then they put a seal on it so you know that every all the life-saving medicines are on there. That turnaround to get a fresh crash card can be hours. And they were finding that cardiac arrests were occurring at a frequency where they would have to run to another floor to get a crash card. So now, and I've heard this report from other hospitals as well. What is their solution? They're putting more and more crash cards on the hospital wards. And then I saw um, a report, an anonymous report from a senior cardiac unit nurse that was on Steve Kirsch's Substack. Uh, I don't know if you saw what Steve did. He did some sort of thing where he invited all healthcare providers to anonymously report the things that they're seeing. And I mean, they're absolutely compelling and they're very believable. You know when a doctor or nurse is talking and they know what they're talking about, but this one cardiac nurse said that she cannot recall a cardiac arrest on a floor in an under 20 year old. And she said, now, in our unit, we're up to 30 in the past year of like, or under 30 year olds, you know, 20, you know, teens and 20 year olds, cardiac arresting and dying in the hospital.
0: Yeah, that's the, the power of the media to propagandize the population. To this is normal, that this is standard, that this happens all the time
1: no and and, but going back to your question like joe they're seeing stuff they've never seen before they're seeing strokes and people with no comorbidities who are young they're seeing heart attacks and otherwise in, in age ranges that you've never seen before so the doctors although they have a serious cognitive dissonance you know i don't know how long they can maintain that and i don't know how many are really maintaining it i mean that that category that you asked me about I have no idea what the category is, but but I got to believe
0: that that they're shifting into at least... Those I know it, it's back. decreasing. My guess is it's still over half the doctors. Yeah. At least That's conservative. Oh, the true
1: believers? I, I think it's... Oh, oh I, that I'm not going to argue with. I think it's over half. But I do think those that either know the fraud and corruption or suspect that something is really, really wrong, but don't want to voice it, I, I, I do believe that number's growing. Good.
0: Okay. Well, thankfully you know, we're able to help facilitate that conversion to reality <laughs> and uh, we're happy to do it. So one of the ways you're doing it is, is, you know, you, the, the great work you're doing. Uh, you publish a sub stack, which is excellent. Uh, it's crazy enough to subscribe to it, uh, which is, what is it? Subs-
1: you it's just- Yeah. It's so- called medical musings.
0: Medical musings. You just type it in the sub stack and you you can get it so and then your new book is coming out in the fall ivermectin war and ivermectin which would be somewhere on halloween because it's scary stuff folks
1: <laughs> i love it joe thanks for mentioning that uh,
0: so then be, please be sure to send me the details of the information of the event in orlando in the first week of October. yes we'll certainly put it in the article Oh, perfect. We'll do. Yeah, yeah. This has been great. Anything else you'd like to close with?
1: No, I, 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 I really enjoyed the discussion, and, and just want to let you know, you have my deepest uh, admiration, and respect. You've been, you've been a truth teller for a long time, and a deeply studied individual on, on all of this healthcare system. You know, you've been on the outside looking at. I, I mean, it must be. I mean, starting with mammography and stuff, you, you see probably you've seen an endless parade of frauds just marching through the
0: system. Well, that my first one that I commented on was actually last century in 1999. Uh, you probably recall uh, it was on Merck. They the, they uh, introduced a drug called biox. A non-steroidal anti-inflammatory that I warned in 1999, which is actually before it was released to the public, okay, before they had FDA approval. I said the study showed it's going to kill lots of people from cardiovascular disease. Wow! Sure enough, it killed 60,000 people yep. before they I finally it out. That a lot. You called it before it was released. 2009. 2009. I oh, said 2000. 1999. Yeah. 1999, I called it. I and didn't that, have a wide to, circulation back then, but
1: that you know. led to a, a, a multi billion dollar fine. They suppressed that. Well,
0: effort. it was supposed to be projection, initial projections were 25 to 30 billion and potentially taking out Merck. Of course, the lawyers got in and they, they whittled it down to just a few billion dollars. I mean, 60,000 deaths. It's crazy. But this pales in comparison to what they're doing yeah. now. You know, who I, I'll, I'll tell you What's
1: one of one of the big play? one of the big financial supporters of um, FLCCC, a lovely man who I've become very close with. Um, he sent me. Uh, he subscribes to this investment advisory service. You know that they, you know, give advice on how to invest in the markets. And and he sent me one of the things they wrote a week ago, and and they really were calling for a short of pharma. They, yeah. they were actually saying so Ed,
0: that Ed, could, Ed Dow's yeah. been helpful in that one for
1: sure. Yeah, Ed, Dow, Ed Dow said that for sure. And I know Ed as well, but but it was it was nice to see like uh an independent investment service arriving at that judgment, you know. I probably I'm sure not independently, but it you know, it's people are there's smart money who is saying you want to
0: short these guys, they might go down. And and I hope they're right. That's yeah, let's let's hope so. So that justice is finally served. All right. Well, you keep up the good work you're doing. Uh, don't hang up because after we sign up on it, had a quick, quick question for you. So sure. thanks again. And, uh, we'll see, see you soon.
1: Thanks, Joe.